Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We ask what's behind Lewis Hamilton's return to form in the Spanish Grand Prix, and what was Roman Grosjean thinking? Lewis Hamilton claimed his second consecutive Grand Prix victory in Spain with victory in Barcelona, a dominant performance, and he was very, very happy with life after that. The last race, he said, was a bit of a lottery. This one, he was bang on form and absolutely delighted. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to look back at the Spanish Grand Prix in our rooftop apartment that sounds a little bit grandiose we're basically in the attic in a in a flat somewhere near the the circuit to catalonia just after midnight to to reflect on this race first guest stuart codling bizarrely sitting on a very small turquoisey blue kind of leighton house color it's very close to leighton house a very small stool what what's what's the story there uh, we discovered to our cost that the actual chairs in here are quite squeaky. So to spare you from spending the next 24 hours editing this, or editing as some TV people would say, uh, I thought I'd sit on a small child's blue stool, which has four legs, which apparently, according to my father-in-law, is suboptimal. He thinks chairs should have three legs and then they won't wobble whatever surface they're on. Well, there we go. Three wheeling on the chair, as it were. I have to say... In no way does sitting on the Charles Turquoise stool that's 
what's that? That's about 12 inches high, maybe, maybe 15 inches, something like that. In no way does that damage your credibility. You look every bit as dignified, influential and insightful and regal as you always do when you're on these podcasts. I don't know what you mean. I miss my wife's Eurovision party to come to this Grand Prix. I'm sure the Eurovision party was all the better for it. Now, my second guest, Scott Mitchell. Now, this actually is your is your bedroom for for the week how are you how are you finding this unusual l-shaped configuration i should add that rather bizarrely this this doesn't come across very well in the podcast we're sort of sat in a dark corner of this room because this is where the conveniently located plug is so we can actually power the equipment need to record this yeah i've already had a, a sort of seating shunt haven't i before the start of this podcast i could have done with my um bizarre square soft i didn't even know what to call it really it's whatever. a poof, isn't it? It, 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 feels, it feels a bit like that. I don't really know what it is, but whatever I'm sitting on, I probably needed three legs instead of this because I had an almighty near shunt and I just now fell off the back. So what a wonderful end to a really, really long day, a really long four days in, in, in Barcelona. I've almost almost injured myself recording a podcast. It's because you failed to keep three points of contact at all times. Also, Scott, when you did have your wobble, you uh, tried to use the edge of the sofa, the kind of armrest of the sofa, to steady yeah, which yourself. T- which isn't a sofa. <laughs> well, uh, shortly before that, when you weren't here, I'd almost fallen off the edge of the sofa, thinking I could get away with leaning on it. So, the, thing, uh, the things we do to bring these people this podcast. Exactly, exactly. It's, it, we better make it a good one, then. Well, there's a first time for everything, isn't there? First time for everything. One person who did make it a good one, what a beautiful segue this is into the serious business of the podcast, is Lewis Hamilton. Now, the first four races of the season, he wasn't especially happy with things. I guess Australia we should set aside because he would have won that without the uh, the virtual safety car and the area over the, the, the delta they needed to Sebastian Vettel to, to regain track position. But he was actually happy with the car. He said he, he had confidence in it on race day, that it was it was more predictable. It had the rear stability that, that he wanted. So, so what's going on here? Is this Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes being back after their early season tyre troubles? Well, it was predictable and it had the rear stability that he wanted. I suppose the elephant in the room here is that... We the, couldn't get an elephant up that little narrow spiral staircase that I almost got I wedged t- in. I tell you what, I had the soft, the soft shoe shuffle up there. It's very, very hard. I'm the one that had to haul my suitcase up here on day one. So imagine how I felt. Oh yeah, I remember hearing the noise. But yeah, so the elephant that isn't in the room because we couldn't fit it up here is the reduced tread depth on the Pirellis, which seem to have, I don't know, it's, it, it's enabled them to run without blisters at all this weekend i haven't heard a single report of a blister and if you think back to the pre-season barcelona test um, pretty much everyone was reporting blisters and there are some whispers stroke gripes that uh, this change has favored mercedes and the way it's sort of come out in the wash is that some people are accusing the fia and pirelli of favoring mercedes which is absolute nonsense i think what's happened is that a change has been made that has shaken out in one team's favour, and as as that has as that dawning realization has crept over the horizon, people are starting to moan. One thing we need to remember is that in testing, Mercedes was was very very competitive here, particularly on the the harder of the tyres. Did seem to stay away from the softer compounds, and again, the the basically the impact of what Pirelli did here was sort of it gave the effect of bringing a harder tyre here. That wasn't really what they did, but that was sort of the the general description of it that that was the impact of their change for this for this circuit and also for the races at Paul Ricard and Silverstone because they've been resurfaced they're going to be high energy circuits so it was for safety it was that the the change that Codders references for safety measures but it's basically just means 
all the teams have to deal with it. Uh, Sebastian Vettel said that it affects everybody, but the difference is, of course, that it it affects each team differently based on the characteristics of their car. It does seem to have helped Mercedes a bit because the limitations that they've had on tyres, this just sort of put them into a more preferable operating window. But it also has to be said that Mercedes have worked extremely hard to understand the Pirellis, to get their car working better, to widen the operating window that they have to work with. And even though he only just about managed to keep Bottas at bay in qualifying, I have to say that Lewis was in a in a class of his own today, wasn't he? He was um, absolutely untouchable. And uh, like in the first stint, he was pulling away from Vettel uh, to the tune of about a second a lap, almost. With, yeah, he was even, over the horizon, wasn't without he? Even, without any concern. Well, after that safety car period we had for the, for the shunt triggered by Roman Grosjean, which I'm sure we'll come back to later, there was a period of about 10 laps basically between the restart and Vettel pitting, where I think Hamilton average was pulling just over 0.65 a lap on him, so consistently pulling away. Vettel didn't have any any answer at all for well, that. You mentioned that Hamilton was very, very good in Australia and deserved the win there, but we didn't see that level of performance in Australia, did we? It was a much smaller sort of gradual eking clear from Lewis here. So certainly in the race, yeah. yeah Six tenths in qualifying. Yeah, but we but. we, we recognise that that was a sort of slightly anomalous gap. I mean, in race conditions, I don't remember the last time I saw Lewis like this. I, I can't think of a race towards the end of last season where he looked this in control and you could see what it meant to him, couldn't you, at the end of the race. And afterwards he talked quite eloquently, as he, as he always does, about the sort of positive energy he's been feeling and the fact that he just had a car that he could do with do what he wants with and you sort of mentioned it at the beginning he he got lucky in Baku and he knew that and that hurt I think that he'd inherited a win that other people had earned and, and he, when he talked about that some people gave him some stick for that but he was being honest and heartfelt and and eloquent about about that feeling he wasn't trying to make himself look like some hero for for being noble about it no, he exactly. genuinely wasn't happy with his performance exactly but the opposite can be said here he said um that he's you know, he viewed this race as a as a test bench. That was the phrase he used of of how hard he could push the car and what he could learn from it. And he just didn't back off, and it was just relentless. And I think he beat Bottas by some twenty seconds or just over twenty seconds in the end. So it was just a I, I, I don't use the phrase lightly. I think it was a genuine masterclass from from Lewis today. I mean, there was some suggestion that Bottas was having to fuel save at the end, but I think that was, so. I think that was about the tyres because he was. He was being asked to manage the tyre because the front left was getting pr- pretty pretty difficult. He said at the end he could see that it was down to the canvas, which is quite a bit. But, but, term, but, but yeah. the problem that Bottas was having is he was being told, right, manage the load on the front left. So it, and his response, there's one point where he was told to manage it more, and he just said, no, can't. And the reason was because if you ease off too much, you then lose tyre temperature. And when you're very low down on the tread and you lose tyre temperature, you might never get it back. So he was walking this this tightrope. <laughs> well, we've of, all of been tr- fascinated by the tyre pressure, the live tyre pressure readout on our Opel Insignia hire car this weekend. Well, I had to we? give you a warning not long ago about the, was it the rear right that was a bit hot? Or was yeah, it yeah, it, was, it, it gone up a bit. Yeah, the, the, well, they're in kilopascals, uh, the readout. So it, it does seem to be a little bit more exaggerated the, because it's a higher number. One thing on tyres, we did talk a little bit about the Pirelli thing, but I think there's been so many conspiracy theories here. I'm just going to devote a few seconds, a few minutes, whatever, just to explaining the sequence of events that actually led to Pirelli doing this. They had the problem with blistering in testing, resurfaced circuit, very different, grippier surface, smoother surface, so we saw improved lap times. 
loads of teams were having blistering in testing, Ferrari included, McLaren, Mercedes. This wasn't just Mercedes asking. They they were aware of this. They consulted with all the teams. They prepared a report and a recommendation that went to the FOA. All the teams knew about it, saying, right, for this race, for Paul Ricard and for Silverstone, we're going to reduce the tread depth by 0.4 millimetre, which is... I think in the neighbourhood of about 10% of the tread depth. I don't know the exact full tread depth because that's quite a closely guarded sequence, a secret, but it is it is in that vicinity. So everybody went through this. They didn't change the compounding. It, it was not a harder tyre. As Scott said, it did maybe have some of the characteristics and the feel to the driver more importantly. It didn't give them the same stability and, and confidence, but that, that was the process that this has all gone through. So this stuff with Ferrari drivers complaining about it and suggesting it was a Mercedes change is, it, it's, is really, really, really It's law correct. of unintended consequences, isn't it? And I very think, often people ask for something and then don't like what they get. I think it was a bit of a mistranslation because I'm pretty sure the original, not request, but the initial suggestion came from Mercedes. I think they saw pretty high... Uh, I think they saw pretty intense blistering in, in testing like a lot of other teams did. And I think it was a Mercedes suggestion to Pirelli that this could be a major problem in in the warmer in, in the warmer month of May. Well, I think Pirelli, Pirelli and, were aware and, of this already. They spoke to yeah, all exactly. the Yeah, exactly. So this is the point. So Mercedes mentioned it, but Pirelli carried out their own investigation. The other teams supported it as well. Mercedes weren't on, on their own in terms of the teams that were saying to Pirelli and the FOA maybe you want to do this. So Pirelli and the FOA then, then carried it out. And then the, th- this is the thing that I don't get about the conspiracy theories is if you were going to try and use a, a special favour or something like that to have a rule change, why would you do it for three out of 21 races? Because that's what pe- like, I feel that's the point that some people are missing. This is only for three races. So if this does give Mercedes some supposed advantage, and we do have to say there was a massive swing in qualifying and race performance here from the last few races, Ferrari has been on top since Australia, it's, it is for free races and that is ultimately not going to define the season as a whole. So I think people do sort of need to get back in their box a little bit and accept that this is just something that happens in Grand Prix racing. Conspiracy theories are inherently self-validating though, aren't they? But I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> Everyone with a tinfoil hat on is seeing your part of the, the conspiracy. But, but no, what it can do is it can eliminate a problem for, for someone, even if it doesn't help them. And Mercedes have been struggling with it. And it was very clear that, you know, you could, you could see it trackside as well, like Red Bull and, and Ferrari, even on the, the kind of turn in, it was a little bit more, the car was a little bit more lively on turn, a bit more responsive, almost like they had a bit more responsive steering dialed into it. And they were struggling a bit with that. And the Mercedes has always been quite quite pointy, should we say. I don't think it's changed a great deal for them, but they they were just able to get it to work. And I was watching NP3 when they did their, their performance runs on the Super Softs, which every, a lot of people were struggling to get the most the best out of, and actually Mercedes in taking first and second on the grid, Hamilton ahead by four hundredths of a second from from Bottas. They got the Super Softs working. And watching them in P3, you could see the Mercedes looked pretty happy running through the long turn three right-hander. And the Ferraris were just a little bit, not all over the place, but just a tiny bit less connected to the track. So you could see what the problem was there. The Red Bulls as well were just that little bit more lively and not quite quite as planted. So I think it's the thing that sometimes you can have an effect on the relative competitiveness through a perfectly legitimate change just because it happens to benefit someone or make it easier to possibly manage their problems. It doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's deliberate. And I do think Mercedes have done so much work to solve this problem as they're always going to do that that's also also played into it but it's interesting with mercedes the point before i kind of interrupted it with a with going before back you interrupted yourself a, a, yeah interruptions self-interruptions it's a it's a whole cavalcade of them well we saw how 
big an advantage Hamilton did have over Bottas. The race circumstances did exaggerate it a little bit with Bottas having to stop a bit earlier maybe than he wanted to in order to, to take advantage of Vettel's early stop to jump him, which he did everything he needed to do and the team was right with the strategy. But obviously things didn't go quite as well as, uh, as well. So what do we make of, of that battle with Vettel initially ahead, Bottas seemingly having done the work to jump him and then not, and then... Verstappen managing to get ahead of Vettel when Vettel stops again. It's quite an interesting little battle for, for for that group. Well, it was. You know, Scott and I nudged each other at that point uh, because we were starting to think that it was developing into a slightly processional Grand Prix. And then when when I sort of saw Bottas go go purple in sector one, I sort of went, look, something's about to happen. And then we uh, we saw the Ferrari pit crew peel into the pit lane uh, and we were speculating as to whether it was just Mercedes trying to give them a nudge and force Ferrari into an early stop. And Toto Wolff did say that they they were aware that Ferrari were marginal on front left and were possibly uh, prone to being forced into making an early stop and, and therefore going on to a two-stopper. And, and, and that's that's what came about. But then it was slightly disappointing that that Mercedes stop then was a little bit slower so they didn't make the undercut, as it were, work. Not the first time that we've seen Bottas do everything he can probably do on track and circumstances taking something away from him, is it? So we had China, where he did everything he could and, and probably and deserved to win that race, but then the safety car changed it. The safety car then came in his favour in Baku and he hit the debris on the start-finish straight and when he was was, was winning and, and, and here he should have had a... He should have had a second place earned on merit at the, at the time. And what did he, he lost 1.4 seconds to the Ferrari in the pits? Yeah, it was in that vicinity, and and he had the, he had the gap. Because yeah, yeah he, he'd nailed he'd nailed his yeah. um not his the the lap before the in lap and the in lap, well, which yeah. combined with Vettel not being able to switch on the he switched the mediums in the Vettel. Yeah, yeah he just he didn't. Had, Vettel also had Magnussen. He dropped just behind, and yeah, getting the mediums to work. But in total, on those two laps that Bottas had. Uh, he gained two seconds on Vettel from yeah, he'd the time. Done, he'd, he'd done Vettel, the job, uh, hadn't he? He over Vettel when Vettel came out of the pits. Yeah, he'd did, done the job. Did we see what went wrong in the stop? Because I, I did the right, that. The right did, rear, they couldn't get it off. Yeah. Well, uh, they, they could, but it took them a, a second and a bit so to get it. It was just a bit of a sticky right rear. As I, I suspected it was that because I'd, I'd done that goober thing of wandering over to the window to have a look and the right rear was the only bit that I couldn't see from my angle because of course that weird arrangement with the windows we have where they slope out and the you've got the safety barrier that stops you actually looking over so from from what i could see it was a perfectly adequate stop except he was stationary for longer than expected and like i said the, the right rear was the only bit of the car i couldn't see obviously it ended up becoming trivial anyway didn't it so well this is the thing wasn't it with vettel then making another stop obviously Things got a little bit mixed up there because you then had the Red Bulls coming into the equation because uh, Max Verstappen and Daniel Ricciardo, who'd run fifth and sixth early on, then Raikkonen had sat fourth and then eventually retired with some kind of engine problem, power loss. Maybe it was related to the airs. We're not 100% sure at, at this moment, but he was was wiped out of the, out of the equation, which is a shame because he had another decent, decent weekend. And unlike Vettel, he was fairly confident that he could have one stopped because he wasn't quite so hard on the on the front left. So that that would have been interesting. But you ended the, up. Sorry, I mean the, the Vettel situation's interesting because I asked a perfectly innocuous question at the press conference about the VSC timing, and I said, uh, I, I think my question was, do, was it was it actually the case that you really needed to stop, or did 
was there a belief that you could stop and get out ahead of Verstappen? And that precipitated that bizarre rant about people cheating the VSC uh, regime, which was quite bizarre. Well, it was odd as well, because I'm not entirely sure what he was getting out there, because looking at where the gaps were, I remember saying to you, Scott, when it happened, it's like, well, he'll come out with between the two Red Bulls, because that was that was where the, the, the natural gap was going to be. I think I'd be interested to know what Vettel could have done, because often teams and drivers think they won't make it on where, etc. But maybe he could, could have made it to the end of the race. But the thing that amazed me is giving up track position at a track like Barcelona is a big, big, big risk. It's not like China, where you've got that great long straight with the DRS zone into the hairpin where you can you can pass with with relative ease if you've got a, a speed advantage. It is hard to overtake there. So for Ferrari to take the move to drop behind uh, both Verstappen and Bottas and sacrifice track position means they must have been absolutely certain he couldn't have made it to the end. Were they right, though? Well, that's the thing. And it, if they were right, obviously they, would have, they wouldn't have pit Vettel unless they thought that he wouldn't have been able to make it to the end. By extension there's the suggestion that that means that Mercedes couldn't either or would be struggling and have to really nurse it to the end. So then you've got the situation where the track position becomes less important because not only do you have fresh tyres and a faster car, you're then going to catch a car that's massively limping at the end. So if if their data, their understanding and their assumption, logic, belief, whatever you want to call it, was that these tyres will really, really struggle to make it to the end, then it, it was logical to do it at that point because virtual safety car came out so the time loss was not minimal but it was lessened but the problem is that's not how it transpired okay Bottas was nursing the front left more more than Hamilton towards the end so there was difficulty there they made it to the end with with relative comfort to be honest so I, I struggle to believe that Ferrari weren't left feeling a little bit like oh we've we've dropped the ball there it's interesting though, isn't it? Because we see a little bit of a different approach between Mercedes and Ferrari in terms of how they react to things. Mercedes, this year, to their credit, they've been very open in terms of if they've made errors. Toto Wolff's been happy to say straight after races, yeah, I think we did it for that reason. So the reasons made sense at the time, but actually the correct thing to do would have been that. And they do their their debrief uh, YouTube things, their, their pure pit wall uh, videos, which can be quite insightful. Whereas Ferrari, it's just anything happens, it's like, nope, nope, wasn't a mistake, nope. Nope. Could but have done it, anything different. I mean, it's difficult. Different cars behave differently. Wear and degradation vary between cars and drivers. So we can't say that just because Bottas stopped on lap 19 and got to the end on mediums doesn't mean that Vettel could have done. But the fact that Raikkonen was heading to maybe do that, admittedly going fractionally slow, albeit not not you know, not on a completely different, uh, a different level, just a, a few tenths, slower record he could do it so you have to say well maybe, maybe they could have done and were they were ferrari convinced that others were going to two stop because we heard some of the radio chatter there seemed to be some surprise that the red bulls were going to go on to one stop so i think we have to put this down as a as a, a possible strategy error from ferrari especially as they maybe could have waited to see a little bit longer to see what happened but perhaps they just thought well vsc we can at least guarantee we stay ahead of danny ricardo I think they got it wrong, but what do I know? I'm just a humble man in an attic. So. I, th- I think you might be Wear, wearing a yellow. What is that football? Is that a football T-shirt? It's a Sweden, Swedish Sweden football, football team T-shirt. It's got oh. like Swedish things. Yeah. Oh yeah. Why didn't we have IKEA meatballs at any time this weekend? Well, but because, it, probably, probably because we're nowhere near an IKEA. God. <laughs> no. What's the big IKEA? <laughs> uh, there was 
it, it did seem it did seem fairly telegraphed in advance that Red Bull were uh, going to stick on one stop because I think Ricardo in his post qualifying press conference when he was ranting about the tires, which you know we we have a story coming up, which will probably have been published on Autosport.com by the time this web uh, podcast is available. Um, he was saying that. It's been obvious since Friday that we would probably be doing a one-stop with um, soft onto medium. And, and obvious for everyone as well, because it was clear even from the outside of teams that soft, medium, one-stopper was the, the ideal way uh, ideal way to do it. So, yeah, I, I do find it a little bit Except for there was that message during the race where Bottas was told that it's clear the Rebels are one-stopping, they're ahead of us on track, so they are a threat, which was yep. suggesting that there was going to be um, a, a, another stop. Yeah, so, I think Mercedes may have been thinking about it. I mean, but I guess obviously, if Bottas was the guy that was the one of the two Mercedes guys that were that was nursing the the front left towards the end, then maybe it makes sense that he was having to think about it more than Lewis. I don't know. But, well, he stopped a lot earlier as well in well, response to Vettel, so maybe Bottas's race had gone a little bit astray. Because I was surprised by how early Vettel stopped. It didn't seem to make sense. And, did and it? I think Mercedes. I was looking and thinking, well, if I'm Mercedes, do I pit Bottas? But they they wanted to take the chance to gain track position over him, which they all but did, but didn't because of the the sticky right rear. So uh, it, it's 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 all it's always difficult to know where where teams are going to go with this. But whatever way you spin it, Ferrari held second and finished fourth with a Vettel car. So that that's not a good day, is it? The what, the thing that I find really curious about the Ferrari thing is the the biggest evidence that their their move for fresh tyres and seeding track position was a blunder was the fact that he. He couldn't properly catch a slightly damaged Max Verstappen Red Bull in third, could he, at the end? Because I think he got within DRS range by the end, but there was a time where he was just sort of hovering a couple of seconds away. He just didn't really seem to sort of crack on. It's like, well, you're on fresh tyres. He's Verstappen's got a damaged end plate because he'd, he'd, he'd clipped the back of Lance Stroll's Williams at the VSC restart. There's... I thought he was there for the taking, and Verstappen, to be fair to him, afterwards said he he didn't quite have the negative impact that that he thought that losing that part of the wing would have, and he was able to manage it a bit better. But you, I still thought he was there for the taking, especially as the Ferrari was marginally quicker than the Red Bull this weekend. So if he couldn't catch and pass a Red Bull, he clearly had no chance of catching and passing a Mercedes. Yeah, and he was chipping away at Verstappen at two or three tenths a lap, sometimes half a second a lap, and we were saying to each other, he's, he's going to get him by the end. And then, to be honest again, just even even before he ran out of laps, he just wasn't quite close enough, was it? It was as if he'd kind of capitulated, but that seems to be very much uh, Formula 1 in 2018 that, Sometimes if it gets marginal, a driver will just bank the points rather than stressing their engine with an attack over the final laps. Yeah, it does often seem to be the way. The gap was only seven tenths at the end, but the last couple of laps, Verstappen gave away a few seconds because he wasn't really under threat. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that Verstappen incident. I'm glad you've got your lap time uh, chart yeah. there. Otherwise, like we'd be a, lost, wouldn't we? I always we? like to have a glance to make sure I'm not talking complete nonsense, just just partial nonsense. But Verstappen's... Drive started fifth, ran fifth, picked up the place when Raikkonen retired, picked up the place when Vettel made the second stop. Fairly uneventful beyond that, except for that moment with with Lance Stroll under the VSC when he uh, he hit the back of him. 
was that another Verstappen disaster or are we going to give him a free pass for that one? Because the VSC is slightly unusual and these these things do happen. I think so. It was quite a grown-up drive from Max, wasn't it? I think it was a sort of drive he needed after being kind of front and centre of the news recently for being a bit wild. He actually did need to have a settled race where he didn't actually do anything hugely spectacular and just brought home a good result. He insisted pre uh, race that he didn't he didn't have anything to react to after his bad start to the season. He said that momentum works both ways. Sort of, if you find yourself in this sort of bad spell where where you keep getting caught up in caught up in incidents, making the wrong decision, that that sort of thing, then it looks worse from the outside because people sort of make connections and say, "Oh, well, this is linked to this and to this." When actually, it was just Max was viewing them as separate isolated bad incidents and he actually talked about if he wants anything he wanted to sort of put together a positive spiral rather than a negative one which I think this weekend will probably be the start of because it it wasn't the boring plain race he wanted because he did have that incident with Stroll and it did make the the final stint a little bit more complicated than it needed to be but he has bagged his first podium of the season he did out outperform uh, his teammate Daniel Ricardo, who even for Max's discretion at the VSC, Ricardo managed to trump it by by spinning at the safety car restart. Thought he was really lucky; it didn't cost him cost him more than just some a, a lost bit of lost time and a bruised ego. But Verstappen was actually pretty solid today, and and I think it does bode well, especially going into Monaco, it gives him that little bit of confidence that you need there. So Verstappen in a quick red ball around Monaco back on form should be something to relish. It was interesting, the Ricardo spin, which we still haven't actually seen what happened, but it happened just as the VSC was removed and it went green again in the turn 10 left-hander. So clearly he's he's looped it on the throttle, which is a little bit uh, a little bit embarrassing. We have seen drivers doing that. I guess the only thing we can say that these things do happen with drivers is Sergei Sorokin back at turn nine, coming out of camp, so did exactly the same thing. Yeah, and we saw that, didn't we? But yeah, then we again, did, yeah. He, he did have the excuse of having his uh, suboptimal posterior um, seating position. Yes, which you were taking great, great delight in writing about. Did you, <laughs> did you explain that a little more? It's quite tricky because I think he had a PR person next to him warning him to be careful in his phrasing in the in his post-race presser, but I suspected he was a little bit constricted in the genital region based on his comments. He was talking around it a little bit, but he said he was so uncomfortable it was actually a struggle to finish the race and he could really sort of barely concentrate at the end and he, he said the spin was partly a result of that. Are you suggesting that his chestnuts were roasting on an open fire? I think it was. Nat King Cole was warming up. I don't think Williams should try and constrain what uh, what Sorokin says because that's been one of the best things about Williams. Yeah, we've this really season. we've really enjoyed him, and not just from a you know talks talks nonsense gives you an easy sound bite and a great headline and everyone clicks on it. Not not at all. He's he's just very very open and, and and insightful, and you get that combination of someone who's sort of willing to say what he thinks but actually has something really considered to say because he's a very smart guy yeah exactly an engineering background of course so he has a good uh, a good um, communication with that technical side of the team you know he's not there engineering the car but they kind of speak the same language they're on the same wavelength we've uh, we've gone off piece a little bit on the, the the topics we were discussing but as we've got on to Williams and as he's already been mentioned 
Sorokin did make that mistake, but, but Stroll had another good race. Today. Yeah, hat tip, great first lap, and uh, didn't throw it he's, away. He's did he, doing that? that a lot, isn't he? This year, he's just having those really, really nice first laps. It just puts him he's in a position. Cracking posi- on the first lap. It's yeah. just like that car does not deserve to be in the position that he's putting it in at the end of the first lap. And actually, it's a horrible racer's cliche, but he races from there, doesn't he? He he does he 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 does something with it. I mean, he does slip back. But that's just for him regressing to the mean of the car, isn't it? He, I think he's actually doing a, doing a very good job to even be in that fight to begin with. Yeah, I think racing-wise, and we saw this last year as well. Stroll, when he got track position, was generally was generally pretty pretty tidy, and he's he's quite aggressive on the, the opening lap. I don't want us to get too carried away with him because he did shunt in Friday practice. He did shunt really oddly in qualifying when he had the the understeer moment in the right hand at turn twelve. The sort of medium speed right hander and he had this big understeer and rather than dealing with it he just sort of thought well I'll just sort of keep I'll going just carry, and carry on understeering speed. and then when I run wide I'll just sort of boot it a bit and see what happens and surprisingly enough he ended up ended up in the in the wall so that was a that was a little bit uh, a little bit odd but no, I do agree on race day he's he's doing a decent a decent enough job and you know it's it's a it's a fool's errand almost uh, driving a Williams a lot of the time at the moment so uh, we we can't you know he came out with 11th place, and uh, he reckoned with a few more laps, he'd have been able to pass Leclerc. Carry on understeering is not a film starring Kenneth Williams, Kenneth Cope, Joan Sims, Bernard Breslau, Sid James, and sundry other comedians of the 1950s. You've run out of carry on cast members to cite. Do you know, it's so late at night. If, if this were an episode of Just a Minute and I were Clement Freud, and it was a little bit earlier in the day, I probably would have gone for a full minute. Uh, Jim Dale. Bernie Breslau. I'd done Bernard Breslau. Oh, repetition. There we go. So yeah, it just shows how much I pay attention to what you're saying. My, my role as host is mainly just waiting for you to finish so, uh, so that I can make a rather long and rambling point. It's a bit like being at an FIA press conference, isn't it? With all these journalists who just sit and wait for someone else to stop talking so that they can ask an identical question. But who anyhow, could Scott. You? Who could you be referring to? I can't to? be. Not Scott. I'm sat right here, guys. <laughs> Barely. You're at a very jaunty angle on your... Uh, giant cushion oh, yeah, yeah, I, I had to shuffle forward so I could lay that, lay back a minute ago and stretch my lower back out I, I have to say I know what that these these are called an Ottoman aren't they oh yes yeah, yeah. aren't Ottomans like circular the though I always think of Ottomans as circular <sighs> I don't know certainly not the people who sang yes sir I can boogie but anyway <laughs> let's proceed this is where we end up when it's one o'clock in the morning isn't it well let's just have a look have we have we told the full story of the top five yeah Daniel Ricardo. He also had a, a sneaky off at the restart, the previous restart at Campsa, took a bite of the gravel. Um, so a little bit of a, a messy race for him, but he did, uh, I think he ended up with the fastest lap, didn't he? He was setting some good pace. He, he set the fastest lap on. quite a few times as the fuel load came down. Uh, so yeah, you know, a, a solid race for Red Bull. He said it was, it was uh, what was it, he had felt pain at their relative qualifying pace. Yeah, I think he was hurt a little bit, wasn't he? That's what you said, a little bit hurt at the gap to Hamilton because... Red Bull brought a pretty tasty side pod upgrade, didn't they, for for this race? And they're they're pushing like hell to get the most out of the car because they are still massively struggling with the with with the Renault engine in in qualifying in particular. It just isn't a match for for Ferrari and Mercedes. And Ricardo, I think, was was hoping for for a little bit more. So when Lewis put in that that pole lap and and Bottas was super close behind him, four hundredths of a second or something like that. For the rebels to end up, I think seven tenths back. I think Ricardo was like, ah, yeah, we're, we're really in trouble because that because they'd been just three tenths off after their first Q three runs, hadn't they? So uh, and they've been so much closer this year than last year. As a general rule, take the first four races of this year to last year, 
and uh, Red Bull, I think, had halved their qualifying deficit from 2017, and then here, way back up over a half a second again, and it's just like, uh, well, you take one step forward, and then all of a sudden you're nudged back again, so it, it can't be easy for Ricardo or, or Verstappen, especially when you know that you're just sort of waiting for Sunday, and then you just try and make progress from where, where you can, and then you get to a track like Barcelona, and it'll be the same in Monaco. If they're on the third row again there, they're just going to toil around in fifth and sixth, waiting for a Ferrari to retire or something like that. All things are relative, though, because, of course, McLaren brought a huge up, update package, and they're still over a second off Red Bull. Yeah, well, they got lapped. Alonso got lapped by, by Verstappen. I don't know if he got lapped by Ricardo as well, but... <laughs> McLaren got lapped by Red Bull and that is just the best possible for us anyway and everyone watching the best possible indicator of how much work that program still needs to do to get anywhere near its stated ambitions of fighting for podiums and wins. Well to put some numbers on it McLaren's been about 2.5% off the pace in the previous four races this season which was almost bang on so within a few thousandths the same as the average performance over the 2017 season with uh, with Honda engines. So they've basically gone nowhere. Barcelona, they were about 0.5% closer to the front. Now, I would say Barcelona was a track where I'd expect them to be a bit closer anyway, because it's not so power dependent. The track configuration, you'd expect them to be a little bit closer. So even though they've got this spectacular nose job and they had a few other little bits, or nose a little bit of a diffuser tweak and the the kind of first part of the barge where the leaning leading deflector had been had been tweaked a little bit. I don't think there's anything anything transformative there. So, you know, another another very fine drive from Fernando Alonso to eighth, but yeah, certainly certainly not transformative for, for McLaren. But to come back to your point, Scott, about the Red Bull performance, I think there was something very encouraging for Monaco for Red Bull in that the last sector at Barcelona is always a pretty good indicator for for Monaco in terms of it being relatively slow and you have the chicane that's kind of the dominant lap time influencer in that part. And if you look at it, Daniel Ricciardo was the fastest there, admittedly only a small amount ahead of, of Vettel, but that kind of shows that maybe at a track like Monaco, Red Bull might have a shot trying to do something that's in qualifying they were that they were quickest and then Ricardo I think also set the fastest time in that sector in in the race as well so that that's something for them to hang on to and in fact Hamilton pointed to that performance in the final sector after the race as a reason to be a little bit little bit concerned about Monaco yeah and Max referenced it after the race as well as a reason to be positive for Monaco so yeah there's there's definitely a chance there especially the other thing with Monaco is obviously it's um it's something that's driver influenced, and we've seen a couple of times this year, more than a couple, in fact, where Kimi has been very, very quick in the other Ferrari and not quite put it together on his on his Q3 lap. And if he does that in Monaco, then he's going to find himself a comfortable sixth because I think Ricardo and Verstappen are going to be going all guns blazing in in qualifying in Monte Carlo just to try and sort of that's their sniff of a of a chance, isn't it? Maybe maybe Hungary is another place where 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 they can get in amongst it. Um, but until they get a substantial improvement from from Renault, uh, Red Bull are going to be targeting Monaco as their only real chance of success. So I, I'm looking forward to see what they do on Saturday in particular, because it could be quite spectacular. On the Hypersofts? Yes, the, the tyre that Daniel Ricciardo wants to see everywhere, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I'm sure the Hypersofts would have... Uh... Would have been a delightful tyre at Barcelona. I'm not sure that would have worked, to, worked especially well, even though it was it was uh, getting some decent lap times in testing, but slightly different conditions. Well, let's look a little bit further down. Kevin Magnussen in sixth place. Now, there's very, very little to say about Kevin Magnussen's weekend. In practice, he was very good. In qualifying, he was very good and best of the rest. In the race, aside from that little wobble he had in turn three that did 
yeah. kind of caused sort of Grosjean to have a spend, other than right, that brief moment yeah. that maybe without what happened behind might have cost him a place in normal circumstances. And in the race, he drove around initially in seventh and then in sixth, broke away from all his competitors. It was a it was a boringly superb performance from him. And he was he was picking up personal bests. He was going green quite regularly as the uh, track rubbered in again. And uh, the few lows came down. Because I suppose that, that, that's the other thing we should probably also mention is that we had a humdinger of a thunderstorm last night. That, uh, oh, sorry, the night before last, as it is now nearly the early hours of the morning, uh, that will have made the track pretty green again. I think uh, I think Magnussen was, was excellent this weekend. As you say, you can't really say too much about the, the weekend because he was exactly the same in every single session, which is just consistent, excellent. And ultimately, it, he is... He's doing everything for Haas at the moment, and I don't just mean that from the sense of, you know, he's 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 qualifying well and getting good results. Like he is literally doing everything for Haas because uh, Grosjean's extended his pointless run, hasn't he? Yeah, nine races without a point now, and, and Roman Grosjean, well, up to turn three. Kevin Magnussen has the wobble in front of him. Grosjean had a crack in first two corners. Well, there we go. So that's uh, yeah. Do another. I was, I was trying to calculate in my head how many corners there were in the in the whole race, but that kind of maths is beyond me at uh, at five past one in the morning. Grosjean blamed the spin on Magnussen's wobble in front of him. So Codders, no. What do you make of that initially, and then what do you make of what happened after the spin had started? Well, it's a very interesting ex- excuse, and and I had the pleasure of transcribing team boss Gunter Steiner's entire press conference which went on for quite a long time because it was broken up by him being pulled aside by a team member to be uh, apprised of the outcome of the stewards investigation and and which they, was a three place grid drop wasn't it it, it was which was actually two penalty points no no yeah it was two penalty yeah, points two penalty, on his license two well, penalty points on his license and and the three pa- the three place grid drop for Monaco is especially harsh because, of course, Monaco, the your grid position's everything, but that, that's kind of by the by. Um, I, I slightly bought it, but I kind of thought that Magnussen was quite a distance ahead, certainly from the in-car camera. That's tricky to make too much of a value judgment of because you do get a foreshortening effect. And we are talking about milliseconds. That is a really, really quick sequence of corners. You know, we've all stood there. Um, in races and testing in times past. It's really quick. And sometimes if, if you do make an adjustment, your tyres aren't really warm enough, you can get a little bit of a spin and it can suck you out onto the wider part of the corner. So so that begs the question, how did Grosjean end up coming back into the corner and, and causing such carnage? Well, well, this is it, isn't it? I mean, I can actually accept. I think maybe there's a little bit of... Of caution there, because it was his teammate, and the last thing he wanted to do was go into the back of him. He said over the radio it did take, it did cost him a little bit of air as well in terms of the downforce and turbulence. So I can kind of expect accept the fact he lost it. But Scott, then <laughs> once the spin has begun, well, once the spin has begun, what you don't do is boot the throttle and not only cause your car to rotate in the middle of the track when thirteen other cars are coming towards you. And the fact that you've lit your tyres up produces a massive cloud of tyre smoke which blinds the rest of the field. Wipes out two competitors. Very, very lucky that it didn't wipe out more. And yeah, yeah, they were just driving into a smoke screen, weren't they? And I just... I just can't buy the argument that was placed before the stewards 
which is that Grosjean thought that that was the best way of not it collecting anyone or being collected by anyone. I, I, I guess his argument was that if it bit, if he had grip, he would shoot to the inside of the track. Steiner's explanation of it was that uh, he would have likely have come to a halt in the middle of the track, in which case he would probably have collect, been collected by five or more other cars, which does have an element of plausibility to it. But I, I, we've all seen cars spin, and when a car spins, you never quite know where it's going to end up. And as I was talking to a few people in the in the paddock this afternoon, I was, I was taken back to a sunny afternoon in California many, many years ago, the 1999 American Le Mans series round at Sears Point, where Alex Caffey driving a Ferrari 333 SP had an enormous shunt exiting a left-hander. Steve Soper in a BMW V12 LMR behind him thinking, ooh, where am I going to go? And Soper thinks that the uh, Ferrari is going to end up driver's right. So Soper tries to go left. But as as Steve himself said, I tried to go left, but the bloody thing wouldn't turn. So I went right. And as it happened, as it sort of crazily rotated away to to the right... Um, the, the the car just sort of caught a little bit and then went to the left. So Soper, having thought he was going to have an epic T-boning shunt, just cruised straight through unscathed and Caffey disappeared off and smithereened his Ferrari into the wall, driver's left. And it's When a car rotates, you really can't predict where it's going to end up. So to say I made a millisecond decision to avoid coming to a halt in the middle of the track. I think he tried to hang on to it for too long. He needs. He should have bailed out earlier and just got on the brakes and dealt with it. I had the uh, the commentary. The commentary that comes through the app is the Radio Five, uh, B- uh, Five Live BBC uh, commentary feed, and they have uh, Julian Palmer there, who was a very insightful uh, commentator. And he referenced, um, I think it was Sochi last year, when Palmer had an off, and he did a similar thing, and he kept it lit. And Palmer was quite critical of what Grosjean did, but he said, "Well, last year I I incorrectly kept it lit." And took Grosjean out, and he was really furious at me and was saying, "Well, why? Why did you? Why did you keep on the power?" So Grosjean has been on the receiving Presumably end. Presumably, he of that. said, "Per." <laughs> <laughs> um, I think in this case, the stewards were bang on, and um, the we, we have to uh, agree with the the final of the victory. They were actually quite scathing in the document, as scathing as stewards can be, and uh, in in my opinion, quite rightly. Yeah, it's a shame because I, I do, I do think Grosjean's got a lot of ability when he can get it together. But the days when he's getting it together seems to be becoming more and more, more and more rare. And after the Baku stupid crash under the safety car when he was on for, well, he was in six at, at that point, and the way the race panned out, it would have been, would it could have well have been higher. So, yeah, it, it, you can't really explain that. And if you're at Haas, you're tearing your hair out, particularly when you've got Kevin Magnussen driving really well. And having kind of the the most unflustered possible weekend with the best possible qualifying and race result, you've got to wonder which side of the garage you're looking to to get your results now because they're only coming from from the Danish side. Especially as even though Grosjean was uh, was still good in qualifying, made it to Q3, and 
and and was was very fast. Um, the rest of his weekend was also very messy. How many times did we see him through the gravel or complaining about a lockup? He he looked on edge and looked ragged all weekend. And it's just when you see a Hass off now spinning or something, you don't even. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I I don't even feel like I need to look for the helmet or the or the number yeah. now. It's it's not just you. And he he was doing that thing where he was just locking up the brakes and complaining about the brakes when actually what he should have done was just brake a little bit earlier. Yeah, it's it's not great. And you know the the pace underlying was was okay, but even in in qualifying he had that off at turn seven, ran through the gravel. I think that was in Q two, wasn't it? Um, and he carried a little bit of floor damage into Q3, which cost him a little bit of time. So that, even then, it held him back. It's, yeah, Grosjean is, uh, you know, he needs to get some, just get a result and try and get this all under control because it's becoming it's becoming a, a, a real problem for Haas. And you're at the point now where if you're the Haas team, you're thinking, well, do we need to be looking elsewhere for a, for a driver for, for, for next year? Now, looking behind Kevin Magnussen was Carlos Sainz. He had a, a good solid run to seventh. You know, a, a decent performance. I don't think he could have done much better. He did have a little bite of the gravel at turn two on the opening lap, though, while he was battling with Alonso. It was quite a busy opening lap. And I, I, I was wondering whether the sort of the whole battle of the Spaniards thing has, had caused a rush of blood to the head because you don't win a Grand Prix on the first lap. You certainly don't win it there because that is a, such a pinch point. The sort of the whole turn one, two, three um, confluence. And you, you can't really go three wide into turn one pretty much. So to try and then carry that on through the following sequence of corners is pretty crazy. Well, that did uh, effectively trigger what happened at turn three because that allowed Grosjean to nip ahead, didn't it? Yeah, also, I think Gasly had to get out of the throttle a little bit because that's one that yeah cause, Gasly cause, had a Gas, Gasly sort of had a, a weird a horrible free corner yeah, it was, it was he? Keystone Cops con- moment wasn't it constantly having to get out of the throttle and correct but he was unfortunate because he had a really good a really really good start as and well. then he just kept being squeezed and turned in on and it was just there was a bit in turn one where he basically just has to suddenly grab the brakes and he, you can see it snatches the rear and he, and he has a little bit of a slide and then he's sort of slivering through through turn two and having to to avoid the cars that are coming back on, so he goes wide into three. But then obviously you've got no grip on the entry to to three on the outside, so he tries to haul it back across to the middle, gets out off the throttle, has another bit of a movement, gets to the inside, and just as he thinks he's he's home and dry, he has this car rotating in front, goes through this big plume of smoke, and wipes off the front left corner of his car. I think he'll be having nightmares about that opening lap because that really was horrendous, wasn't it? Yeah, not really through, through any of his any of his fault. He was having a all round. He had a, pr- a pretty good weekend considering. Uh, but other than that, that moment for Carlos Sainz, you know, just a, a very good performance. A long way behind Kevin Magnussen at the end. I think the gap was thirty seven seconds. I, I don't think they were really in a in a no, race with Magnussen. Maybe race. if he hadn't had that wide moment in two, he could have got past Magnussen when Magnussen had his moment, and maybe that would have changed things. But uh, overall, you could say, yeah, that's a very good performance from uh, Carlos Sainz, who really has got some momentum built up. So he was ahead of Fernando Alonso, who cracking overtaking manoeuvre on Esteban Ocon around the outside of Turn Three during the race. Good, great, good loved performance. it. Uh, overtake of the um, of, of the race, I think. Yeah, well, there, there wasn't much competition, but yeah, there, wasn't, but, there, no, there crack, were a lot of failed crack, overtakes. Cracking pass, very, very opportunistic, and actually did come off come after a failed overtake into Turn One because he had tried. Had a little bit of a look inside Ocon and, and it didn't work. But to, to make that stick, was uh, it, it took guts and, and it was perfectly executed. 
Yeah, and we also saw behind that ninth place Sergio Perez. The two-stop strategy picked up a few cars towards the end. Stop under the virtual safety car. That yeah, he made did. his second stop, so he's one that actually made that made that work. Didn't yeah, he? he stops at the same time as uh, the same time as Vettel, and then the team was always quite confident he'd be able to make up some places, given who he was who he's battling with. So you know, a good good performance from Perez. He certainly wasn't going to finish quite, any higher. Quite unusual of Force India to go for a, a more multi-stop. A strategy usually they go they they attempt to do fewer stops rather than more so that's interesting for them especially with the problem they had on lock on stop which was actually caused by a little bit of the the brake duct had been had been damaged by presumably some debris or something in it some of it was stuck stuck on the on the axle so they had they had to take the wheel off and clean the axle and clean out the wheel and all sorts it was a yeah, absolute it, it nightmare unfor- steam coming out of his ears exactly so even before um even before the uh the, the retirement of Ocon, his uh, his race will be removed. He was on for uh, probably a better result than uh, than Perez, and uh, and Charles Leclerc picking up another point in tenth place with a with a good uh, good battling performance. After scoring was it sixth place in in Azerbaijan, um, I asked him what it was like to go wheel to wheel with with Alonso, put a put a pass on him, and he said, "Oh yeah, that was amazing." But you know, we were on different strategies. But he had a nice little battle with Alonso today that was totally on merit. I keep saying today and forgetting that we it's are now, now, into, yesterday, the, now yeah. into the wee hours, aren't we? Yeah, um, we, we, We've got to get up and go to the airport in three hours, haven't yeah, we? it's going to be fun. Um, no, Le- Leclerc is um, is riding the crest of a wave, to use a bit of a cliche. Um, he's sort of, he sort of he's found his feet now, hasn't he, after a couple of very tricky weekends early in his career and sort of showing the driver that... The sort of the sort of form, sorry, that we've seen from him in as a driver in GP3 and F2 when he won those titles, and and today he was um he, he was flawless, opportunistic again at the beginning, got himself into the top ten, and only lost places to to Alonso and Perez at the end of the two stints because he was struggling with um with the, with the front left as as many drivers were, so he he did a very good job and and, and nicked another point uh, at a race where both he and team boss Fred Vasseur said Sauber had pretty much written the weekend off pretty pre-event thinking oh god this is going to be a horrible one it's going to expose our car and they've come out of it with a second points finish in a row he's really stringing it together and it really does just seem to have clicked for him after he struggled in those early races so I don't know if it's his approach that's changed or they, they've found something that gives him more confidence in the car well, well, one of the things learned a bit as well, well yeah, one, one, one bit, of the yeah. things that they've, they've benefited is that they've they've sort of tweaked the setup philosophy on on his car so he has traditionally in GP3 and F2 developed a driving style that sort of has it quite tail happy he likes a bit of oversteer he likes driving in that manner but um, that was just making the car too nervous. That was why he was spinning quite a lot in testing and in the opening races and opening race weekends. Uh, moving towards a more understeery setup seems to have settled that down, enabled him to push a bit more. He's accepted that that's how you need to drive an F1 car, so or this F1 car anyway. Um, and he's just got on with it. And the results, he's been Q2 two races in a row in a car that is much quicker in, on Sunday than it is on Saturday. So it's clearly worked. Sign of a smart driver, isn't it, that recognises the need to change rather than expecting the car to change to suit the way they want to drive it. Not necessarily easy for a rookie driver to do either because I believe that is the same problem that Van Dorn had last year, was struggling to adapt his, his style that had been owned in GP2. Uh, and... Uh, trying to make it work in Formula 1 and um, Leclerc seems to have got a handle on it a bit quicker. Yeah, it took uh, Van Dorn a good half a season, a hell of a lot of work away from the track as well to, to get on top of that which we did do, but yeah, it's it's not 
an easy thing to do. And there's some there's some much more experienced drivers who could uh, take a leaf out of Charles Leclerc's book in terms of how they can uh, they can deal with car characteristics and trying to suit what they're demanding from it and their style to to the strengths and weaknesses of the car. I guess the other driver we should briefly mention as well is Brendan Hart. You had that huge crash at Campser, the fast uphill right-hander on Saturday, a big rear impact. He he got into the race and had a had a run to 12th place. Um, it's been a pretty difficult first full F1 season for uh, for Brendan Hartley so far, hasn't it? He said that was... Um, sort of, he, he couldn't remember a bigger accident than that one. Yeah, that... We've seen big accidents there before, but what do you think was big? Heike Kovalainen had quite yeah, a big nose in shunt there. I've I've not really seen that many cars go into it tail first, but there's been a few this weekend. I think was there one in the GP3 or the F2 um, qualifying practice. Someone someone went in there tail first and and had quite a big shunt. And the, the the car was just toast. It was, it was quite a scary moment when they were craning it away, and the basically the floor snapped and the engine and gearbox fell off practically on a Marshall's foot. And the damage that that, that crash did to the to the Honda engine in the back of that Toro so is unfortunately going to have a, a bigger knock on effect for Hartley because it moves him onto his third MGUH and third turbo of the season already, which means that whenever Honda introduces its upgraded PU. Um, Hartley will automatically take a grid drop, um, and that's that's a compromise that you you don't want to face. It they they already knew that they were going to be a bit out of it when they introduced the new MGUH and Turbo after Australia after they identified a problem there. But it's just it's just unfortunate, and it, it's going to happen just at a time where Hartley needs to rebuild a bit of a momentum after some difficulties. So not ideal uh, for this weekend and and not ideal for the short term either. Won't have been perfect in the race either because a a car that's been shunted that comprehensively and uh, screwed back together pretty hastily is never quite the same. I think actually he reported a little bit of a Nat King Cole moment on the way to the grid, didn't he? But um, it was actually sort of trial by ice, wasn't it, rather than trial by fire. It was uh, The sensation was burning, but it was the burning you get from something that's incredibly cold because he had a a problem where I think it was something to do with dry ice or something like that because he thought that something was burning him but it was actually ice or something like that that, that was sort of irritating him and they managed to to get that fixed so uh yeah not not ideal by any means for Hartley this weekend yeah well it's uh you know he's used to winning world championships in in WEC so it's it's hard for him to go into a midfield and often lower midfield team and, and battle for it he said the first point in Baku was a relief but yeah there's a little bit of a uh, little bit of pressure building there but you know he's an experienced and quick driver so uh, hopefully he can uh, knuckle down and uh, and start uh, stringing together uh, some more results shortly well going back to Lewis Hamilton's victory that's continued a, a pretty uh, good start to the season with some unpredictable storylines performance swings between the the big three teams and now we've got a Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes back on form so uh yeah another another twist and i think we could have another twist in the tail uh con monaco in uh in race six uh, in a week and a bit's time so you know people who say uh f1's boring that wasn't the most thrilling race but it's still loads of storylines we've still witted on for for nine an hour about it so uh yeah formula one doing pretty well this year i'd say we will be reconvening in our nice little apartment in Cap Ferrat, just a few minutes walk from the the house where David Niven used to live and host infamously louche Hollywood parties 
in the 1960s. I think that I think the listeners will be very pleased to hear that we've all got very little more to add to this podcast. I do have one final message for everyone, which is to keep checking autosport.com for all the latest news from the world of Formula One and the whole world of motorsport, our plus subscriber section with all sorts of in-depth features. And we have our driver ratings on there where you can go in and uh, see how much you disagree with my driver rating and uh, select your own. And we have the average of the readers one to see how, how wrong the collective autosport readership hive mind thinks I am. And also check out F1 Racing out monthly and sister site motorsport.com. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Reach new career heights with University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business. Flexible MBA and MS options. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired, fearless, unstoppable. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.